Thanks for checking out Church on the Rock's message this week. We would love to help you take your next step in knowing God better. The best way to do that is visit cotr.org slash next steps. Or if you're not near our physical campus, visit our online community at cotr.org slash online. Enjoy the message and know that God is for you. Let's give a first class welcome to Michael. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it, really. Boy, this has been uh, just great attendance in this church from last night to this morning. And now again, please be seated. And, you know, before I begin, I've said this in the first service. I want to say it again. You know, last night this started off. We had a leadership, you know, dinner. And uh, I sat there and spoke. We did a QA, and a uh, and it, it was a lot of fun. But I felt such a warmth at the book table uh, so many of the ladies came up and hugged me, and everybody's happy. There's a real spirit of the Lord here. And, you know, the preparation for my coming here, Pastor and his staff really went out of their way to make me feel comfortable. Uh, I couldn't bring my wife on this because we were traveling all week. She had to get a little time home. Got my grandkids over today. Uh, but when I walked into my hotel room, there was a framed picture of me and my wife that was sitting on the table. And I sent it to her. I said, honey, you're here. No worries. But uh, it was really great, Pastor, so thank you so much, and hopefully I'll get to return again one day because, uh, like I said, it's a spirit-filled church, and starts from the top, so it's great. And you know, amen. You know, every time I come up and, and speak, people, my prayer is always the same. I always spend a few minutes, and realizing that I'm just a messenger here this morning, I really mean that. I'm not here to impose my faith on anyone. I don't try to turn anybody into a Christian. I can't do that. Uh, I'm here merely just to share what the Lord has done in my life. And as Christians, we're all obligated to do that. Mark 16, 15, go out and preach, share the good word with all of creation. And I take that very seriously. God has really blessed me in my life. And whenever I'm here, I really want to, you know, do the best possible job I can. And my prayer is always, Lord, let me be passionate enough. Let me be effective in delivering this message so that you can reach out and touch the heart that you want to touch in this room. Because I know he wants to impact you. I know that. I'm here to plant seeds. That's what we do. And um, I don't know any of you, you know, but I know some of you come in here with, with heavy hearts. We all have something that we're dealing with in life, no matter what stage of life that we're in. And uh, some of you have come in with heavy hearts this morning. And my prayer is, Lord, you know, let them understand how much you have blessed me in my life. And I want you to walk out of here a little bit differently than when you walked in. I'm selfish in that regard. I want you to, to really be impacted. And um, I want to tell you this. For those of you that are struggling with your past, you know, I've been too sinful. God can't forgive me. You know, I'm lost in this life and so on and so forth. And all those things that we say that we believe that at times that God can't do anything for us. I want you to take a real good look at me. I'm probably the most blessed, most fortunate person that's ever going to walk up on this stage and talk to you about anything. Now, the reason I say that is because had I been left up to my own to do what I wanted to do, follow the path that I was on, I'd either be dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And quite frankly, that's what I deserved for having spent over 20 years on the street every day in violation of both God's laws and the laws of man. And you know what? I did it knowingly and willingly. Nobody pushed me into this life. 
I was a knowing and willing sinner. And honestly, people, there were times in that life when I was called upon to do some things that made me very uncomfortable. I knew they were wrong. But you know what? I did them anyway. A knowing and willing sinner. And I realized that if God didn't have a different plan and a purpose for my life, I wouldn't be here this morning. He's made that crystal clear to me over the past 25 years. Amen? Now understand this. God has a plan and a purpose for every one of our lives. You don't have to have a mob story. You don't have to be the pastor. You don't have to sing in the choir. Your purpose in life might be to bring one person to the Lord. But remember, all of heaven rejoices when one person comes into the kingdom. And if you fulfill that purpose, we're on equal ground. Remember that. Remember that. So for those of you that are struggling, you know, I have guys that have, have solved a drug problem. They were drug addicted most of their lives. They had a gambling addiction. They come to me with all different things. And they say, Mike, you know, who's going to listen to me? And I say, wait a minute, brother. Who better than you to minister to someone that's gone through that problem? You have credibility. Credibility is 90% of everything. When I speak to these young gangbangers and I tell them, don't tell me you can't walk away from that life. I walked away from the biggest gang in the world. With Jesus, there's always a way. And I can tell you this. Don't ever let the enemy, don't ever, ever let the enemy Think that your past is a deterrent for what you can do and what God will use it for in the future. Even the bad stuff, because remember, what the enemy meant for bad, God will turn around and use for his glory. And that's really the story of my life. I was in the mob, but God gave me a platform all over the world. People are intrigued with this life, maybe because of the movies, media, who knows. But they walk in thinking they're going to hear a mob story. Some of you in here today think you're going to hear a mob story, and you will but you're gonna walk out here and a whole lot about Jesus. That's what it's all about. And please, don't focus on the mob stuff. You wanna hear mob stuff, I'm all over YouTube, all over social media. Go watch The Godfather, Goodfellas, documentaries everywhere. Don't focus on that. What you need to focus on is how God used a very dark time in my life and brought me to where I am today. Remember that, what the enemy meant for bad, God will turn and use for his glory if we allow him to. So, my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York Mafia Cousin Oster families. Very powerful position. And uh, I grew up a lot differently, I assume, than everybody in this room. I grew up hating the police, hated law enforcement, hated the government. And not because my dad taught me that way. He was smart, taught me to respect the law. But it was really because of what I witnessed as a kid growing up. Law enforcement tactics, techniques against organized crime, very different back then than they are today. Everything's very covert. Undercover informants, high-tech surveillance equipment, cameras on every street. Today, a guy can be under investigation and not really know about it until it's too late. Back in my day when you were under investigation, they wanted you to know about it. And for a period of about 10 years, when I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn, later on Long Island, my dad's under investigation from seven or eight different agencies. FBI, IRS, Queens Detective, Brooklyn DA, Nassau County, you name it, they were on him. Every one of these agencies had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I was one of seven kids. When we as a family would leave to go anywhere, we had a parade of law enforcement vehicles following us. Everybody knew when we were coming into town. I witnessed some things that were kind of unpleasant, rough detail. Every once in a while, the agents got a little out of hand. 
Remember one day I'm playing ball in the street, 10 years old. We lived on kind of an incline. Kid throws a ball, goes over my head, rolls down to where two detectives are sitting in the car. As the ball approaches the car, one guy gets out, and a uh, big burly guy, right? And he stops the ball with his foot. And I walk up to him, I say, sir, can I have my ball back? And he looks at me, he's got a suit jacket on, pulls it aside, has a gun in there, and he said, this is for your old man one day. Kind of scary when you're a 10-year-old kid. Another time, we're in a restaurant, family sitting down, have a bite to eat. Uh, they would file in afterwards, sit in a table behind us. One particular night again, another detective gets a little out of hand, makes a nasty remark to my dad as he's passing our table, loud enough for all of us to hear. Dad didn't like that. You don't disrespect my father, especially in front of his family. He jumped up, went right after the agent. The agent got scared. My dad was a pretty tough guy, pulls out his gun. Right in the middle of the restaurant, everybody started screaming. My dad says, go ahead, I'll drop you before you get off your first shot. Good stuff when you're eating, right? Me and my brother jump in between him, separate him, pull him apart. You know, normal stuff you do when you're a kid. And, uh, and so I didn't like them very much back then. But I want to make this very clear right now. I see a lot of young people in here this morning, so listen up. I do not feel that way anymore. I finally realized in my life that they were the good guys, we were the bad guys, at least most of the time. Look, any walk of life, anybody can get out of hand, you know? That's not the normal. Anybody can get out of hand. But you know, people, it's amazing how God can not only transform a heart, and I think you know he can do that, but how he can transform a mind. This whole distorted sense of view I had growing up where good was bad and God was, and bad was good. God's been able to fix that. Today, some of my dearest friends are in law enforcement all over this country. And not because I share information. I didn't do that. I didn't put anybody in prison. We're just friends. Many of us brothers and sisters in Christ, and I learned through this experience that we really are all one in the kingdom of God, people. Amen? Amen. And I love my dad. I didn't care what people said about him, what I read in the newspaper. Great father, great husband to my mother. Even through all the turbulent times we lived through as a kid with all of this stuff, okay, he tried to give us a good family life. He would never bring what was going on in the outside world into the family. Into the house, we were a family. That was it. And, you know, there were some perks, you know, having a dad and a mom. I'll give you one of them. When I was a kid in school, I played all three sports, so kind of a jock. My dad would never miss a game, no matter what he was doing. Mob business, legit business. I'm playing ball, he'd show up. This happened so often, I'll, re uh, so often I'll repeat it. Baseball was really my sport. And I'd be playing ball, and I'd look for dad. I'd be up to bat, right? And I'm looking for him, because he'd always come late. And then I see him out of the corner of my eye. He pulls up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. He would never go into the parking lot because he was late. He'd pull right up to the field. And uh, for those of you who remember those uh, 1960 Cadillacs, their fin was half the size of this room. You couldn't miss them, right? So he pulls right up to the field. He gets out of the car. He's dressed sharp in a suit. My dad really had the gangster look. He always had five or six guys with him. He'd never travel alone. They get out of the car, walk onto the field, go into the stands. I'm up to bat. I kid you not. The umpire takes one look at that crew. Never called strike three on me when he saw dad. I used to say, hey, Pop, you're very good for my batting average. I played football. Nobody would tackle me when he was in the stands. It's good to have a dad and a mom when you play sports, right? He was great. He got in some real trouble back in the 60s. He was indicted several times, three times in the state of New York, twice for grand larceny, once for murder. Went to trial on all three of those cases, eventually found not guilty, acquitted in court. But then in 1966, my dad was indicted in federal court for masterminding 
a nationwide string of bank robberies. After a lengthy trial, he was convicted. In 1967, Dad was sentenced to 50, 50 years in prison, longest sentence for a bank robbery conspiracy case ever given up to that point. 1970, he loses all his appeals. They ship him off to Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas to do his time. And uh, I was devastated. My dad was 50 when he went in. I figured he had 50 on top of that. He'd never come out of prison alive. And by the way, I was a pre-med student, Hofstra University, when my dad went in. He didn't want this life for me. He wanted me to go to school, get an education, stay off the street. And that's the path that I was on. I never aspired to be in the mob. I saw my dad. I respected him. I loved, you know, everything about him that I saw at that time. But I didn't want to follow in his footsteps. I was going to be a doctor. And if you would ask me back then, Michael, what do you really want to be? What's your goal? I'd want to play center field for the New York Yankees. Mickey Mantle was a big, you know, my hero at that point in time. Of course, I wasn't good enough. But that was it. That's the path that I was on. But when dad went away, everything really changed. And, you know, I will tell you this, people. My dad did a lot of bad things in his life. No, no uh, doubt about that. So did I. I went to prison for a crime that I was guilty of. I pled guilty. I did my time. But that particular crime that my dad did all that time for, he was innocent of. My dad was no bank robber. I'll take that to my grave, people. I investigated that case thoroughly. We spoke to every witness afterwards. They recanted their testimony. We gave them lie detector tests. They passed, proved that they lied at the trial. We can never get the conviction overturned. Went up to the Supreme Court on constitutional issues in my dad's case. My dad did 40 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But what does that tell you? It's what I tell these young people when I minister to them, when I go into prisons, juvenile halls, I'll tell them straight out, you do not, the system is not always fair. It's not always fair. You put that bullseye on your back, you get in there in, in, you know, in their eyesight like that, you're going down. There's no question about it. You're not going to beat it. The government has too many weapons uh, to come against you. So what's the best way to stay away from it? Avoid it. Don't get involved. Do the right things in life. And I tell these young people all the time, because I spent a lot of time in prison with a lot of young kids coming into the system, 20, uh, uh, 19, 20, 21 years old, mandatory minimum drug sentences. In the federal system, you get 20, you're doing 17 and a half. There's no more parole. Very hard for a young person to go through that, come out and be a productive member of society. Very, very difficult. And even before I was a Christian, I would counsel them because they'd come to me, you know, the whole mob stuff. They looked up to me and I try to mentor that to them. And you know what? They, you can tell the same story for every one of them. Write the same script. They came out of a broken home. No father figure in the house. Mom trying to do her best. Normally a young woman trying to get her own life together. Couldn't concentrate or focus on. Let me tell you some people. I have seven kids, seven children. And it's hard to raise kids. You got to have, you know, both parents got to be doing the job. It's very hard. My young son, Michael Jr., I can't tell you what this kid put me through for years, years. I was so frustrated because I couldn't communicate with him. I communicate for a living. He totally turned me off. My wife used to tell me, he's a late bloomer. Pray for him. And I used to say, but how late? It's not working. You know what? But you know what? She was right. He turned out okay because God had his back, okay? A mother's prayers are very powerful, let me tell you. <clears throat> but you young kids, I used to tell them this, and I'm telling you all this this morning. Take heed. In this world, remember, we are who we hang out with. 
You hang with the wrong crowd. You're going to be known to be the wrong type of person. And of course, they're going to influence you. You know, I tell people all the time, when I came to Christ, I didn't get a lobotomy. I don't forget the 20 years on the street. Sometimes I get off a plane in New York. Somebody looks shady, looks at me the wrong way. I'm ready to go. I say, hey, man, what's up? It's like 20 years of ministry and out the street and I'm the mob guy again. It happens just like that. You must surround yourself with the right people. Be accountable to the right people. Guys tell me, Michael, I don't have to go to church. Church is in my house. Church is not in your house. Church is right here in church. Church is where you come and hear this wonderful worship music. You give praise and honor and glory to our God. You don't do that at home, at home in the shower. And if you do, I guarantee it's not as effective as it is here on the, in church. You listen to a great message uh, from the pastor that prepares you for all the stuff you have to deal with during the week that sometimes we don't know where it's coming from. You get involved in a small group, so important. You go out in the lobby and you fellowship with like-minded people. We must have nourishment. We live in a world, especially today, where the enemy is always on attack people. And you young people have more distractions at your fingertips on these phones than we ever had as kids growing up. We must stay nourished. It's vital. It's important. Amen? Amen. But back then it was different. And like I said, I love my dad. And when dad went in, I was devastated. Joe Colombo, the boss of my family, kind of takes me under his wing. I started meeting a lot of my dad's friends. Mike, what are you doing going to school? If you don't help your old man out, he's going to die in prison. I'm very affected by that. I go see dad. We're in the visiting room, Leavenworth Penitentiary. Dad, I'm not going to school anymore. If I don't help you out, you're going to die in here. Because, you know, I asked my dad, I looked at him, I said, Dad, bank robbery. He looked me in the eye and he said, Son, I'm innocent. I'm not a bank robber. I was framed on this case. And I believed him. My dad didn't lie to me. I believed him. And that motivated me to want to help him because I figured he's going to die in there. And we went back and forth. He said, You know what? I want you to go to school. I said, Dad, my mind's made up. I was a pretty headstrong kid. I'll never forget. He looked at me, kind of threw his hands up, and he said, Okay, but if you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. He said, go home. Somebody's going to be in touch with you. Do whatever you're told. That was it. He didn't break it down for me. He didn't say this is what's required of you. You know, that life is a secret life. When you take that oath of omerta, you know what that means? It doesn't mean you're going to lie, steal, cheat, and kill. It means an oath of silence. You're never even supposed to admit that the life exists. And my dad, if he was anything, he was a good soldier. He wouldn't violate that with me, his own son. He just knew I had it in me. Go home and do what you're told. And you know what? I didn't question my dad. I loved him so much. I said, hey, dad, just point me in that direction. Whatever you want me to do, I'm ready to do. I had blind faith in what my father asked me to do. Now, you know, people, there are certain defining moments in our life that really have an impact on us, sometimes change the course of our life, of our thinking. This was a defining moment, obviously, because my dad was proposing me into a criminal lifestyle. But more than that, because of this meeting, when I finally came to Christ, I didn't come easy. I said, wait a second, God. I trusted my father more than anything. I followed him blindly into this life, and look where it got me. It got me in a very bad place. You take it a step further in my life. I took a blood oath. I surrendered my life to Cousin Ostra. People, you come into that life, you got to give it all up. Body, mind, and soul, or you don't exist. You don't exist in that life if you don't give it all up. I said, God, I did this twice in my life. I can't do it again. If you really are God, 
If this Bible is written by men, but inspired by you, the blueprint for our life, that's how I look at scripture. It's God's word in our life. And you take it a step further. If you say, God, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. No gray area, black and white, Jesus or nothing. I said, well, you know what, God, you put me on this earth. You gave me a free will. You said I can choose one of any hundred faiths, or I don't have to choose any faith at all. And now you're telling me this is the only way to go? No, God, you got to do more for me. You got to prove it to me. You got to show me the evidence. And people, I know a little bit about evidence. I've been arrested over 18 times in my life. I've been indicted seven times. I've had two federal racketeering cases brought against me and five state cases. I went to trial five times. I've visited my father for 25 years. I've been in front of more parole hearings, more grand juries than you could imagine. I've been up to the Supreme Court on constitutional issues in my dad's case. Evidence has played a major part of my life. I think in terms of evidence. And when I challenged God, I wanted to see the proof. And you know what? When I challenged him, he didn't get upset with me. I believe he said, okay, my son, if you're ready to open up your heart and your stubborn mind, I'm ready to show you because I am God and I do have the evidence. And I want to tell you this. When I finally did that, I found there is more evidence, more rock-solid evidence to prove that the Bible is God's word and that Jesus is our risen Savior. I don't know about any of you. I don't put my faith in anybody that's dead and buried in a tomb. I learned long ago, dead people don't help us. There's more evidence to prove that than there is anything else that exists in the world. Did you hear that statement? That's pretty bold. More evidence to prove than the, that than there is anything else that exists in the world. And if you've done nothing at this point in time, you need to go and look for that evidence because Paul tells us, test everything, hold on to the truth, and you're going to find nothing but truth. You know, guys, I'm speaking to you specifically because a lot of guys tell me, hey, you know what? Show me. And then they don't want to look. Got to do the work. Got to do the work. Let the Spirit guide you. And I guarantee you, I want to tell you this, people. Amen. I'm not the best Christian by far in the world. I have my ups and downs and I make my mistakes, but my faith in Jesus is rock solid. Nobody can shake that, no one, based upon the evidence. About two weeks later, a captain in a family picks me up, takes me to see the boss. Joe Colombo had been shot and seriously wounded. A new boss took over. His name was Tom DeBella. He's passed on now. Mike, I got a message from your father. He said, you want to become a member of our life? Is that true? I said, yes. Here's the deal. From now on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're on call to serve this family, the Colombo family. That means if your mother is sick and she's dying and you're at her bedside and we call you to service, you leave your mother, you come and serve us. From now on, we're number one in your life before anything and everything. When and if we feel you deserve this privilege, this honor to become a member, we'll let you know. People, the mob's not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole subculture from everything else that exists. We have our own rules, our own policies. We affect everyone around us, family, friends, people we do business with. For the next two and a half years, I was in kind of a recruit pledge period. Had to do anything and everything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. And people, that could have been something very menial. A lot of discipline in that life, a lot of respect, a lot of authority. You had a meeting at 8 o'clock, you weren't there at 7.30, you were late. You could never be late in that life. A lot of stuff like that. And I want to be really honest with you this morning because you need to understand what God has brought me. And that's for those of you that are struggling with your past. 
That life at times is very violent. And if you're part of the life, you're part of the violence, and there's no escape. And I think you know what I mean. And if anybody tells you differently, they're either not being honest with you or they weren't a made man in that life. After about two and a half years, proved myself worthy. Halloween night, 1975, I was called into a room uh, with five other gentlemen. That night, we all took an oath and became sworn made members of the Colombo family, an oath I took very seriously back then. I take it seriously today, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. What I know about the life in my heart, my mind, spent over 20 years, not easily forgotten. You know what they say? They say when you leave that life, you either leave in a coffin or you join the government and enter a witness protection program. Obviously, I've done neither. Very solemn ceremony, dimly lit room late at night. They wanted you to understand the uh, seriousness of what you were getting involved in. We walked into a room individually, boss seated at the head of a horseshoe configuration, underboss, consigliere to his left and right. All the captains were alongside of them. I stood in front of the boss, held out my hand. He took a knife right here, cut my finger. Some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it on my hands and lit it aflame. It didn't hurt. It burned quickly. It was merely symbolic. And he said something to me that night I don't recall ever hearing in my life before. I grew up as a Catholic, Catholic school from kindergarten right through high school, altar boy, the whole bit. But for me, for some reason, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I didn't understand that this whole life is about a relationship with Jesus. And yes, you can have a relationship with Jesus the same way you can have a relationship with the person sitting next to you. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. And when he said this, it was the first time I recall hearing it. He said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. And that's the oath. You come into the life, you come in as a soldier. I was motivated to do two things. One, get my dad out of prison. I did get him out after 10 years on parole. He kept going back, did 40 total. And secondly, I wanted to make money. My dad said, in this life, you make money, translates to power, not unlike the real world. And I was fortunate. I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business. I was very aggressive on the street, brought some different things into the family they hadn't done before. and went on to make a very significant amount of money. You saw the DVD. No, no need to go into that. 1980, the boss of my family, Carmine Persico, uh, who was convicted on the Mafia Commission case by Giuliani, sentenced to 100 years. He died in prison in 2019. He said to me, Michael, you're doing a good job for the family. I'm going to make you a capo regime, captain. And that's a very powerful position. And from 1980 until about 95, I operated in that capacity. And I want to tell you where I was in 1984 when I believe God started to make this transition in my life. 1984, I'm a captain in the family. Um, and quite honestly, I had beaten a number of cases. I went to trial five times. Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani um, indicted me on a big racketeering case in 1984. I was a lead defendant. I had 15 co-defendants. Rudy tells me in the courtroom the day of my arraignment, he gave me a million-dollar bail. He says, Francis, if I convict you on this case, I'm giving you double what your father got. You're going to get 100 years. That's the kind of time they were giving mob guys back then. Look it up. I remember standing toe-to-toe, -to -toe and Rudy said, hey, Rudy, bring it on. I beat you guys four times already. Let's go to round five. 
And that's about the dumbest thing you could ever do to, you know, you don't, you don't antagonize them anymore. They don't need more incentive to come after you. But I was young and arrogant back then. But fortunately, after a several-month trial in federal court in Manhattan, I was acquitted in that case. Some of my co-defendants were convicted. They got 30 years. I lose that case. He gives me at least 50. I'm not here today. So I beat all of these cases. Quite honestly, I had devised a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. I ran it for almost eight years, the height of my operation. We were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month, taking down uh, 30 to 40 cents a gallon. We were bringing in five, seven, eight, ten million dollars a week. I had my own jet plane. I had a helicopter, house in Florida, house in New York, house in Marina del Rey, California. I had about 300 guys under me ready to do anything I tell them to do. And quite honestly, they were prepping me. And my, uh, my boss also uh, had a son. We came in at the same time. He baptized my oldest boy. And they were grooming us to take over the Colombo family at one point. So I had it going on. Beat all of these cases. Going to be the boss of a major family. Got all the money I need. Got all the guys around me. I had it going on. Top of the world, ma. Now, did I believe in God back then? Sure I did. People, does it not make sense to believe in God? When you look at this universe and the complexity, how could you believe in, in evolution? They want you to believe that some tiny speck of dust, that they can't explain how it came into existence in a universe that never existed, and they still can't explain that, that makes sense. Well, this little speck of dust, someday, one day rather, in some big bang explosion, explodes, and what does it explode into? Everything. Think about it. And they say God is a stretch. Intelligent design is a stretch. When you look around, the Bible is clear. The wonder of what we see, how could it have just came into existence by itself? It makes no sense. I believe in intelligent design. I don't know how God always was, always will be, always remains the same. There are some things that are beyond our human capacity to understand. Maybe when we get to heaven, God will explain. Maybe not. He's God. Doesn't have to. But I had no relationship with God. He was doing his thing. I was doing mine. Then something happened. Among many things I was doing back then, I was making movies. I had a production company in L.A. Smokey Robinson, dear friend, comes to me with a screenplay for a breakdance movie. A lot of music, a lot of dance, a lot of rap music. But that's when you can listen to rap music on the radio. Sorry, you young ones, but not like today. Forget about today, this stuff. But back then, it was cool. Sugar Hill Gang, Curtis Blow, Run DMC, the Fat Boys, old school rap, right? I said, uh, so, uh, <clears throat> we'll, we'll make the movie, Smokey. Let's film it in Florida. I got the house down there. We, we like the warm weather. So we're filming this in Florida. I bring cast and crew from L.A. to work in the film, 20 professional dancers. I got them staying in a hotel, the Marina Bay Club, I think it was, in Fort Lauderdale. And we had just finished pre-production, about four or five weeks, and we were going to start principal photography on a Monday. Sunday, I throw a party for everyone in the back of the hotel. Beautiful day in Florida. Everybody's having a good time. I'm sitting by the pool, minding my own business, and all of a sudden, out of the water, comes this gorgeous 20-year-old girl. I saw her. Honestly, everything went in slow motion. It was like a Pepsi commercial, right? I said, wow, who is this girl? So she looked like a dancer to me. She had kind of a dancer's body. So uh, Jeff, the choreographer, was sitting there at the pool. I said, Jeff, come over here. Is that one of your girls? He said, yeah. I said, what's her name? He said, Camille. I said, bring her over. I want to meet her. 
Big Shot producer, she wanted to meet me. Why not, right? So she comes over. I introduce myself to her. I said, Camille, I want to get to know you better. I'm your producer. Let me take you to lunch. She says, sure. Sweet, polite, gorgeous, right? So I set up a restaurant on top of one of the hotels in Miami. I figured she'd come up there. I'd sweep her off her feet. She's mine. That was my attitude back then, right? I'm up there a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour later. She stood me up. She never showed up, right? Stood up a mob guy. Imagine that. She didn't know who I was. I probably would have never seen her again. So I see her on the set the next day, and I say, hey, what happened? We had a date. You didn't show up. I thought she was going to say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, please forgive me. She said, I was busy. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> what were you doing? She said, well, I was rehearsing. I said, oh, okay. Got it. Can we try again? She said, sure, no problem. We go again. She stood me up again. Now, she did this to me five times. Always said yes, never showed up, right? So, uh, you know, and I, I have five daughters, and I tell them all the time, you, you want some knucklehead guy, play hard to get. Believe me, we always want what we can't have. Don't make it easy, right? So anyway, she won't have anything to do with me. Finally, we start to talk one day, and, you know, we ease into everything. She starts to like me a little bit. We wrap the movie. She came from Anaheim, California. She had no clue about the mob or anything else. We don't have a mob. We used to call them the Mickey Mouse mob in California. Anyway. Um, when we wrapped the movie, she says, you got to come home and meet my mother. She loved her mother very, very close. I said, hey, I'm great with moms. Let's go. We jump on a plane. We go out to Anaheim. I meet her mom. Her mom, Irma, was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. You meet Irma for two minutes. Your name goes into her prayer book. She had a prayer book like a telephone book. Oh, my God. I have to say this. came into my head just now. We're sitting. I know her two weeks. We're sitting at breakfast, me, Camille, and her mom. Her mom turns to me out of nowhere and says, Michael, where are you with your faith? And I said, well, what do you mean? You know, she says, well, where are you with your faith? I said, well, you know, I grew up Catholic. I didn't even know how to answer. I said, I grew up a Catholic. I believe in God. She said, okay. She looks at me, my hand to the Lord, and she said, one day you're going to be preaching the word of God to millions of people around the world. Just like that. And I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, this woman has no clue who I am or where I said, she must be on crack or something's going wrong here. And my wife, my girlfriend at that point, looks at her and says, Ma, please don't scare him away. I'm hoping for a church service on Sunday, maybe a, 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 you know, a, during a week on a Wednesday, a Bible study. And just like that, right? And her mom looks at her, I'll never forget, and she said, why would you ever limit the power of Jesus Christ in anyone's life? And understand, I'm in the middle of this conversation. I said, this is weird. What is going on here? She turns and she says, I'm writing your name in my prayer book, and I'm going to pray for you from this day forward. I believe that woman prayed me to where I am today. I believe in the power of prayer because of my mother-in-law. So here's what's happening. I'm falling in love with this girl. And now understand, I wasn't buying into the Christianity part, but I respected their faith because they were genuine. But I'm saying, I want to marry this girl. Am I going to bring her into this life? It's a destructive life for families. Am I going to have her go through what I went through, what my mom went through and all of this? I said, can't do this. So I had to make a choice. Was it her or was it the life? Now, people... How do, you, how do you understand this? She wasn't the first beautiful woman I met in my life, but there was something about her. And now 38 years later, there's no doubt that that something was God. 
God put this woman in my life to change the course of my life. Now, I have to ask all of you this. Who did God put in your life? Who dragged you into this church this morning? Who's been praying for you? So many women came over to me this morning, bought a book, said, I got to give this to my husband. I've been praying for him. I have to give it to my son. People are praying for you. You know, God doesn't take a day off. He doesn't go to next church, next town, next village. He's always trying to get our attention. Maybe through the people we meet. Maybe through a great joy in our life. Maybe through something that's unpleasant. He's always trying to get our attention. I'm asking all of you now, are you paying attention? If you're in this church this morning, it's not a coincidence. You didn't happen to see a sign. Some people say, man, I didn't even know you were going to be here this morning. It's not a coincidence, people. God's trying to get your attention. That's it. So here's what I'm saying. Okay, I got a plan. I have always had a plan, right? I had leverage with the government because I beat them so many times. They wanted a conviction on me. It's good to have leverage with the government. So I tell my lawyer, hey, I'm going to take a plea. They're going to indict me on this gasoline case. My partner became an informant and kind of blew the whistle on everything. I said, I'll take a plea. I'll do some time. I'll pay the government some money. I'll marry Camille. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of prison, I'll have parole and probation. I can use that as an excuse not to meet up with the guys. It's a violation. Maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll forget about me. That was my plan. Had nothing to do with God. But that wasn't God's plan. He wasn't going to allow me to backdoor this. Sometimes we think we got it all down pat. God's got something else up his sleeve. So, 10-year prison sentence, $15 million in restitution, $5 million in forfeitures. I gave up the plane, the helicopter, the whole bit. I married Camille in July of 85. I go to prison in December of 85. We were married four months. People, I'm not the story here. My wife is the story. What that girl went through, she didn't have a clue. She was 21 years old when I married her. She didn't have a clue what she was going to go through. And she'll tell you, I love my husband, but if God wasn't in the foundation of our marriage, wouldn't have made it through. Too tough. I did eight very difficult years in prison. When it came public that uh, I had walked away from that life, Life magazine wrote a whole big story. I'm in a lot of trouble on a street period. People, you can't walk away from that life. My boss, immediate contract on my life. My dad went along with the contract. My dad was this life first, unfortunately, right? Feds come into the prison. Francis, you're a dead man anyway. Quote, we got word from our informants. Join us. We'll put you in the witness protection program. Preserve your life and that of your families. I didn't want to do that. I wasn't mad at anybody. Didn't want to hurt anybody. I just wanted out of the life. They didn't take no for an answer that easily. They put me on diesel therapy, shipped me all around the country, different prisons, trying to break me down. We get through that. We do five years. I do five years in prison. I get out on parole. I'm on parole 13 months. Worst 13 months of my life. I'm literally dodging bullets. Feds are all over me. We had to move once or twice. Big shot mob guy made all this money on the street. I couldn't do anything in L.A. It was like a fish out of water. Couldn't get my life mentally in every which way together. After 13 months, like a fool, I mean it, a fool, I fall into a trap violate my parole. I'm walking out of a bank. Agents, 15 of them out there, slapped the cuffs on me, going to the bank, leaned my bank accounts, drove my car away, went into my house with a search warrant, cleaned us out, went into my wife's purse, took every penny. This isn't your money, it's your husband's money. 
We're indicting him on another racketeering case. We're violating his parole. Your husband will never see the street again. My wife had a breakdown. She couldn't come visit me for seven or eight weeks. She had no money even to buy milk for the kids. We had two little babies. That's how destructive it was. They're driving me down to the federal lockup, ready to transport me back to Brooklyn in the morning where the case was. And they say, Francis, we're done with you. I was playing a game with them, making them think I was going to cooperate. End of the day, I wouldn't. Finally caught up with me. We're done with you, Francis. You'll never see the street again. They locked me in that uh, federal jail in L.A. They put me in a hole. And this is my situation. I said, it's over. I'm really done this time. I said, they took all my money? Another racketeering case? You don't beat these cases with a federal defender. I spent millions defending myself. They're complicated. I said, my wife, she waited for me five years, 13 months on parole. We got two little babies. She's 27 years old. I'm going to lose the girl I did all of this for. I said, they can't put me out on the yard. I got everybody looking to kill me. The Bureau of Prisons is not going to take that responsibility. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this six-by-eight cell. I was done, people. You know, I used to demean people that were suicidal. I have to admit it. I used to say, you're weak. How do you not face up to your troubles? I don't do that anymore. I wasn't suicidal that night, but honestly, I wanted to lay my head on that cot and not wake up again. It was too painful for me to think of my future. I was done. I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. Take me. I'm laying there. I'm done. Prison guard walks by myself. Francis, you okay? You don't look good. I said, man, get away from me. I chased him. I don't want to see you guys. He left. Comes back about a minute later and pushes something through the slot on the door. Falls on the floor. I hear a thump. It was a Bible. I looked down at the Bible. I got angry. I didn't want to hear about God. I didn't want to buy. I wanted a bottle of Prozac or something. Forget what I was going through. I'm looking down at that Bible, and I'm building up all this emotion. I jump off that cot, pick up that Bible, and slammed it against that cinder block wall as hard as I could, like everything came out of me. It took me another minute. I said, you know what? It's only me and God in this cell. I got nothing but enemies. I don't need another enemy. I picked up that book, and I looked up at that cement ceiling, and I said, God, if you're really up there, you need to give me something to make me feel better. I can't deal with this. I needed help. I'm holding the book. I never read the Bible. In Catholic school, you read the catechism. The priest reads the Bible from the pulpit on a Sunday. I'm holding it open. It falls open to the book of Proverbs. Coincidence? I don't think so. Analytical guy, things have to make sense. Solomon was brilliant. When God said to Solomon in the book of Kings, nobody before you will ever be as wise, nobody after you will ever be as wise, as a reward for what he didn't ask for, with the exception of Jesus, who had a little advantage, he was God, nobody was as brilliant as Solomon. I'm reading that book, and all of a sudden, I'm coming a little bit inspired. And then I come to a verse that just stopped me cold. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord... Even his enemies are at peace with him. Now, why did that get me? The enemies part. I had nothing but enemies. And then it was like I kind of slipped back. It was as if the Holy Spirit was standing in front of me and saying, were your ways pleasing to me? And I was convicted. I knew they weren't. And it's almost as if he said, well, if they were, I can take care of your enemies. That's how I interpreted that verse that night. And you know this, people that read your Bible, 
You can read a verse 10 different times, 10 different interpretations. Why? The Holy Spirit speaks to you through that verse according to your needs at that moment. <laughs> Caused me to read on a little bit more, and I came to a verse that's become the verse of my life, and I think it should be the verse of every one of your lives. It all starts here. And I don't want to tell you what to do, but I am a former mob guy. I have a tendency to do that. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Isn't everything about trust, people? Lean not on your own understanding, because there are times when we just don't have the answers. I didn't have them that night. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, because he's God and he deserves that. And catch this verse, because I looked up the translation. He will, not he can, or not he might. He will make your path straight. That's the night I challenged God, people. Trusted my father, took an oath. Look where it got me, God. You got to prove it to me. I spent the next 29 months and seven days in solitary. Six by eight cell, 24-7, me and God. And people, that's not easy. Not at all. That's, it's torturous. A lot of guys did not do well when those lights went out. I heard a lot of moaning and groaning and saw a lot of things there that I'd like to forget I saw. It's a tough deal doing isolation like that. But I dove into my Bible. I had my wife send me in over 400 books on every faith. I read, I absorbed, I'm very into apologetics. I read everything that I could because I was trying to discern and find out what faith was real. And I came out of there believing with all my heart that the Bible was God's word and that Jesus is my risen savior. And I just wanna say this, people, Guys, listen to this, because you know, in Catholic school, I'm ashamed to admit this, I had this wimpy view of Jesus. He's hanging on a cross. I never looked at him as really being manly. But when I separated his deity from his manhood and I studied Jesus of Nazareth, I came to realize there was no greater man that ever walked the face of the earth in every facet of his character, everything. He is the person that we are to emulate throughout our lives because if you emulate Jesus, you're going to be better at everything. A better husband, a better father, a better wife, a better boss, a better employee, a better person in the community. You're going to benefit in every way of your life. And if he wasn't the savior of the world, well, what did you have to lose when you're dead? You're dead anyway. Emulating Jesus, my friends, is a win-win situation because we know he's the savior of the world. And as a result of that, we got all of paradise, all of heaven to gain. So I wanna ask you this. There's nothing more important than this. If you were to die today, where are you gonna spend the rest of eternity? There's nothing more important in your life than that question. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Very explicit in the Bible, it's not a joke. This is serious stuff. The good news is nobody has to spend a minute in hell. Not even the thief on the cross, a lifelong criminal, a sinner who turned to Jesus in the last seconds of his life and said, remember me in your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. If you haven't repented your sins and accepted Christ as our Savior, you don't have another minute to waste, people. 
So pastor is going to come up here right now. And he's going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Now you can refuse it, but there's consequences to that. So it's really an offer you can't refuse. And I want to thank you all for having me again. I've got about 15 minutes outside and then have to catch a plane. I only wish I could stay a little bit longer. But you've all been wonderful. I've been tremendously blessed. Thank all of you for being just so wonderful. God bless you. Hope to see you again. Thank you. What is your next step in your faith? Well, here at Church on the Rock, we would love to help you. Maybe it's to learn more about discovering what it means to belong to a church family, being part of a small group, or using your God-given gifts to serve others. Head over to cotr.org slash next steps where you can find out more to all of these. Or if you're a part of our online community, visit us at cotr.org slash online. Have a great week and don't forget that God is for you.